Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we are grateful for the fact that as we gather together today, it is not to witness priests offering sacrifices in order to atone for sin. That as I come before these people, it is not as a priest standing before them to make some kind of blood offering repeatedly over and over again because it could never ultimately take away sin. We are reminded in the book of Hebrews that when Christ came, that he offered himself once and for all, one single time, a sacrifice for sins, and as a result of that finished work, sat down at the right hand of God, and that he is awaiting that time when every enemy will be put under his feet, and he shall return in triumphant glory as that priest did coming out of the Holy of Holies triumphant to the celebration of the people because the sins had been forgiven. But we look to you, our great high priest, the one who will go in only once, offer that sacrifice only once, return once, and therefore establish all that you have done. We know that it is by that single offering that you have perfected for all time those who are being made holy as you are holy. The Holy Spirit is the one who indwells us and empowers us. The one who has inspired the writers to say that there is a covenant that is made, a new covenant between God and his people, where your laws are put into our hearts and you write them on our minds. And you never again call to mind our sins. You never again call to mind the lawless deeds that define us because we are absolutely and totally forgiven. And those who are in Christ never again have to fear that any of their sins will separate them from you or will cause you to stop loving them. As the songwriter put it, What love could imagine, what love could fathom, what love could comprehend a God who knows everything and yet chooses not to call to mind the sins that he witnessed and instead separates them from him as far as the east is from the west into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Oh, Father, may today be a day where mercy reigns, where mercy reigns in the hearts and minds of everyone present here and even those who might be watching this, that your grace would be so evident that they would realize there is no need for shame. There is no need to be alienated from the people of God or the person of God because of the work of God through Christ that has made us the sons of God and heirs of his kingdom. May that be what gives us such great and full assurance today as we gather to listen to this glorious good news and gospel preached to us, reminding us again and again of what you have done for us. And therefore, may our hearts, our minds, and our affections be turned to you. In your name we pray. Amen. If you have ever had the opportunity of being guided through a museum, then you understand the benefit that a guide brings. Because there are times when you're trying to appreciate a piece of art, especially a piece of modern art, and it takes somebody to explain to you the, the, the meaning and the significance and the, the relationship of elements of that artwork in order for you to really see the majesty and the beauty and the splendor and the genius of it. I had that experience several years ago at a modern art gallery, and I was actually discussing it earlier with Catherine, trying to jog my memory of where I was, and we seem to recall the whole thing differently, or I just can't remember any of it, but the point is... I do vividly remember that moment where, when instructed exactly how to look at the sculpture, how to look at the painting, how to look at the piece of art, all of a sudden, when you know how to look at it, it all makes sense. 
Now, in some ways, the book of Romans reminds me of that. Because the book of Romans is the kind of book that unless you can appreciate everything that goes into being Roman and living in Rome, it's going to be difficult to fully appreciate the significance of the book. Now, I don't mean to be trite, but the reality is Romans was written to Romans. The book of Romans was written to the Romans, actual card-carrying citizens of the Roman Empire, Roman people living in Rome who would identify themselves as Roman. And so when Paul sets about to write this particular book to this particular people, he is doing so, and in doing so, he approaches those who were essentially in the very metropolitan hub of the Gentile world. Paul writes to Rome as the apostle to the Gentiles, to the very epicenter of the Gentiles, just like Peter wrote to the Jews as the apostle to the Jews to those living in Jerusalem, the very epicenter of Judaism. And so to understand Romans is to understand Rome and to understand Roman culture. Now, let me give you just a very brief history because I think it's helpful here. And I understand that for some of you this will be interesting, and for some of you this will not be interesting. And I know that because I did a little straw poll last night at the dinner table, and I scored 50%. (laughs) Half were interested, half were not. And the one who was not was maybe being more honest, and the one who said he was was maybe trying to win some kind of favor with me. So maybe most of you won't find this interesting, but I will feel like I have done my duty, and I will have discharged it. And I think it's helpful. Rome was settled according to legend, about 750 B.C. And there's a lot of, uh, again, legend around that. Uh, Ramus and Remus, you probably understand the history of this if you've taken any in school. But in this particular case, 750 B.C. being the beginning of that, and it was essentially a monarchy. It was a city that was, was founded with these deity kings, And by around 500 B.C., after the surrounding nations, which were stronger than Rome, had threatened them for many years, they finally obtained their freedom. They finally threw off the control of the other powers around them, and they swore they would never have a monarchy again, and so they established really the first republic. The leaders of Rome established a senate, and that senate was made up of noblemen who would lead the city and eventually the nation, uh, through a democratic process. And that really held true until the republic itself was more or less overturned with the arrival of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was a brilliant military commander, and he had run the military in Gaul, and he had been very successful, and on his way into the city, he breached the Rubicon crossed it and went into the city of Rome, and that was not permitted. You weren't allowed to bring your armies into Rome, but he had essentially gathered his men together and in an insurrection had come and established himself in that city, and instead of being killed for it or being killed for treason, he was named the emperor. Wasn't emperor for very long, In fact, as a result of his uh, tyrannical style of rule and his disregard for the political processes that had existed in Rome for many centuries, uh, people who were more committed to the republic than they were to this one figure killed him. And that began a succession of Caesars. There was a battle for several decades to see who would be in charge, and after his adopted son came to the throne, as it were, he was able to manipulate the people into bringing him into official status as the leader of the Roman Empire. And so from Julius Caesar, you have Augustus, who was, by the way, in power back in Luke chapter 2 when he ordered that all the world should be taxed, and Mary and Joseph had to go to Bethlehem to obey. From him came Tiberius, a man of uh, exquisite immorality, trained up his heir, Caligula, who really outdid him in terms of his depravity. Then came Claudius and finally Nero. And it was Nero who was in power when Paul wrote 
the book of Romans. Incidentally, it was also Nero who was in power when Peter wrote the first letter that we have from him known as 1 Peter, which was read to you earlier. I find it interesting that both um, Peter and Paul uh, instructed the Christians on how they were to interact with the government during a time when the government under Nero uh, was at almost its zenith in terms of its corruption and depravity. As terrible as it is in some respects for us today in this country, it is absolutely nothing compared to what it was like in Rome and frankly over much of the history of Christianity. But more than that, the the Romans also gave us stuff that we still use in our everyday lives. Um, I found this interesting. In fact, the planets are named after the Roman gods. They could only see with the naked eye the sun and the moon, but Mercury and Venus and Mars and Saturn and Jupiter, all named after their gods. The months of the year come from their deities. In 46 BC, Julius Caesar reformed the entire calendar, and that's why we have it the way we do today. January comes from the god Janus, that's the Roman god of gates and doorways, the one with two faces that look in opposite directions. February comes from a Roman festival of purification called Februa. March was named after the god Mars, and his name came from the uh, wars that were waged in the month of March. That's usually when war started up again. Uh, The snow had melted, the ground had thawed, and it was time to go back to war. Mars is given its name because of its blood-red color, reminder of the warrior Mars. April, named after Epaphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty, also associated with the planet Venus. May comes from the word Maya, or the Great One. This is the Italian version of the goddess of spring. June, named after Juno, the main goddess of the Roman pantheon, goddess of marriage and also the well-being of women. She's the wife and, incidentally, the sister of Jupiter. July, it's an interesting uh, month, Julius Caesar, when he uh, reformed the calendar, decided that he would name a month after himself, and so that's where you get July. And of course, um, Augustus followed him, and he wasn't going to be outdone, so Augustus came up with what? August, there you go. And then they kind of ran out of ideas, and so September, October, November, and December are just ways of saying seventh month, eighth month, ninth month, and tenth month. But it also left open at least four months for future ambitious Caesars to name months after themselves, which I guess they never did. But even the weeks of the, or the days of the week are influenced by Rome. In fact, uh, today we're gathered on this day, Sunday, named after uh, which celestial body? The sun. Very good, class. The three of you who are finding this interesting are really engaged. We're almost done. Monday was named after the moon. Tuesday, originally named after the war god Mars, but later named after the Germanic form of that war god, which was Tiu. Wednesday, again the Germanic influence, but it's the equivalent to the Roman god Mercury. He was called Wooden, so it was Wooden's Day or Wednesday. Uh, Jovis was named after, or was given the, uh, the Norse god named Thor, so it was Thor's day or Thursday. The Roman god Venus was the same as the Norse god Frigg. Frigday became Friday, and Saturday named after, of course, Saturn, the god of agriculture, which is why we all mow our grass on Saturday. <laughs> now, everything that... Uh, went into being in the Roman Empire, went into being a Roman Christian. I mean, it influenced everything. It was who you were. It was where you got your identity. A Roman citizenship was something to be prized. It was something that could be purchased, but was most often won. And most people won it because they were faithful in military service. The way that you would become a full-fledged citizen of the Roman Empire is that you would give yourself into the service of the military, 
And after you had completed your term of service, you were granted this privilege and right of citizenship. And it carried many important benefits. Uh, We see that most practically even in the lives of the apostles. Peter was not a citizen of the Roman Empire and therefore was crucified. Paul was a citizen and therefore beheaded. Now, there were certain things you couldn't do to a Roman citizen. This is why Paul, when he was being unjustly treated, actually appealed to Caesar. He says, I'm going to appeal to the laws of the land. I think it's also why he told the believers in Romans 13 and the passage just preceding what we'll look at this morning, that they too, if they are to live according to how he described life in Romans chapter 12, that they should expect to appeal to the Roman authority and by and large, especially at that time, expect to have some kind of civil protection instead of going down the path of being a vigilante. So as everything goes back to Rome, and all roads lead to Rome, so all ideas and philosophies and culture goes back to Rome. And and Paul knows that as he sets out to write this last section of Romans 13, and really it's so short, just a few verses, that it won't take us very long to cover it this morning, but I hope it also helps to position us where we need to be in the book as we prepare for the next section Uh, beginning in chapter 14. But if you would, please follow along in your Bibles as I read Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. Romans 13, 11 through 14. This is God's Word. Besides this, you know the time that our hour has come for you to wake up from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I have to say that I'm pleased from time to time when I hear people describe what it's like to attend our church and and what they typically come away with in terms of what they remember from the teaching and from the worship and from the interaction with other believers. And I'm especially pleased when I hear that what they remember is that we're a church that reminds us weekly of the gospel, of grace, of mercy, and not a church that insists on burdening them with a a long list of good works they're supposed to do in an effort to somehow please God or maybe earn back some of the debt of their salvation. And in many respects, that is the very core of everything that we believe and teach here. Gospel apart from works, salvation apart from works, faith alone, grace alone, the solas of the Reformation, uh, the very backbone and structure of all of the theology of the Reformation. And yet at the same time, as is always necessary, you do have to remind the body as it is assembled that there are still expectations, That grace and mercy does not therefore encourage you to cast off all restraint, all control, all pursuit of godliness. In fact, if anything, I would say that it heightens and amplifies the need for that because the Word of God doesn't let you off with just good works. In fact, it calls you to something even more than that, to holiness and perfection. In a very similar way to what we discussed a couple of weeks ago when the man comes to Jesus, the lawyer, and he says that I have loved the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I love my neighbor as myself. And Jesus says, great, go do that, and you'll have eternal life, sarcastically reminding the man that it's impossible to attain to that standard. Likewise, we, even as New Covenant, New Testament, gospel believers, understand that there is a call, as it was read to us earlier, to be holy, for I am holy. That word holy is translated sanctified. And there's two ways to understand your sanctification. One is that it is positional. 
In Romans chapter 8, we are reminded that those whom God justified, he also sanctified and he also glorified. It means that you are justified, made right with God. Your sin has been completely paid for and his righteousness is imputed to you. Sanctified means literally you've been set apart. It, it just means to be taken from one area of service and, and to put into another. It's a positional sanctification. Glorification is a done deal. It's declared to us really in the past tense, you're as good as glorified. So then what do we do with the often stated process of sanctification? What do we do with this idea that you are being progressively sanctified? Is that even the proper way to understand it? I would argue this morning that it's probably better for us to take the word sanctified, in a case like that, replace it with the word holy, being made holy, the pursuit of holiness. The pursuit of holiness is a fruit. It is not something that you do in order to earn your salvation. It is something that you do because salvation has been earned for you. The holiness that one pursues, the holiness that one produces, and the fruit thereof is not the result of works, but the result of grace. The very same grace that saved is the grace that makes us holy. So when Paul addresses the people with this sort of ethical mandate in Romans 13, I would like you to view it through those lenses. And in that, let me show you three things. The, pers- the priority the pursuit, and the position. It's three different ways of looking at this in this very short section. We'll call this message stripping down and putting on. And in that, we're going to look at our priority, our pursuit, and our position. First of all, our priority. This comes to us in verse 11. Paul says, besides this, well, besides what? Well, besides everything that he has been telling us up until this point in the book of Romans, but especially in this section of application that began back in chapter 12, besides all of, all of this, you know the time. The time has come. The time is right. This word for time is very interesting. Uh, it's a word that has built into it the, the Greek word for head. Uh, it was used to describe what an abscess or a boil looked like moments before it erupted. That's a rather disgusting picture, isn't it? But imagine a festering boil on the verge of erupting and spewing forth all of its noxious contents. That's what would have been in the person's mind who read Paul's words when he said, you know it's about to happen. This is the time. And that vivid imagery, I trust, will stick with you, and you will never again be able to read this verse without a slight turning in your stomach. But what is he talking about? Basically, that the hour has come for you to wake up. Now, this is uh, figurative and metaphorical for action, but it also, again, would have been very clear to the Roman believers, because in Rome, it was the city that woke up very early. Visitors to Rome would often write in their diary how difficult it was to sleep in, because from very early in the morning, everything began to work. People began to ride their carts through the city. In fact, because of traffic congestion, only contractors and those with carts were allowed to be in the city. You couldn't bring your personal chariot into town. So all the workers were there bringing their materials into town. Everybody who was at work in their blacksmith shop or in their bakery, whatever they were doing, they were doing it very early in the morning. And so when Paul says to wake from sleep, he is borrowing just the natural experiences that the people had and applied it to their Christian life. He said, the reason for this is that salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Let's take a moment, though, and describe what that word salvation means. Please do not for a moment believe that he is talking about your forensic justification, your, your actual salvation going from darkness to light, from death to life, from being unsaved to being saved. Uh, the word salvation here is not talking about your, your spiritual rebirth. Uh, instead, the, the word sozo that he uses many times here in the book of Romans is a word that 
really means to rescue. It means to deliver. God is the one who rescues. God is the one who delivers them. Uh, He is the one who takes them out of harm's way and brings them to safety. I do find it interesting when I'm doing a study like this just to see how many times Paul uses a word in the same book. And so if you'll just bear with me, let's take a little tour through the book of Romans as it relates to salvation. Go back to Romans chapter 1. This is where he first uses the term. And remember, we're differentiating here between salvation in this context and the more technical term of justification. Here we're talking about a much more expansive and inclusive term. It begins in Romans 1 and verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is a salvation that encompasses every tribe, tongue, people, nation, all who put their faith and trust in God. Uh, It is a salvation looking back, a salvation from your sin. It is a salvation that is present as Jesus Christ intercedes for us on the very throne. And it is a salvation that is to come when we are given our new bodies at the resurrection, a new heavens and a new earth. So this is the first place it is used. Flip over to Romans chapter 10. In verse 1, this is the next place where Paul draws on this word. Here again, verse 1 of chapter 10, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that's to the Jewish people, is that they may be saved. Of course, he's talking about their salvation spiritually, but also saved, liberated, delivered, rescued from uh, the very burdensome and eventual deadly commitment to the law. We'll look down in chapter 10 to verse 10. Once again, the same word appears. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Here, showing both the parallel and the distinction. Of course, it is with the heart that you believe that you are justified, and yet with the mouth you confess, and you confess your confidence in God, not only to save your soul, but also to give you that new body that you're longing for. Uh, You'll remember earlier when, when Paul is saying that the entire earth groans, and everybody groans for the redemption, not really of their souls only, but the redemption of their bodies the ultimate salvation of the the new heavens, the new earth, and the new body. And then in chapter 11, verse 11, once again, he uses the term, he says, so, I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Here, of course, the salvation cannot be specifically and only the new birth, because here he says it came to all Gentiles, meaning that all Gentiles instead have that opportunity to be rescued from their sin instead of putting their trust in pagan gods. So from the very beginning of the book of Romans, it is a word that he uses deliberately and specifically to speak of the impending rescue of God, of his people, culminating here in chapter 13, verse 11. The time has come, the hour is near, wake from sleep, get ready, because salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. So the salvation he's talking about here is the ultimate deliverance the return of Christ. And it is closer for them than when they first believed, just like it's closer for you than when you first believed. I don't think he's talking here about time in general. He is not saying that uh, it is now closer than than ever before on the eschatological calendar. That that would be rather obvious because with every passing day, we are closer to the Lord's return. He isn't saying, oh, get up and wake up and do more and work harder and be more productive because the Lord is coming back at any moment. That wouldn't be very fair given the fact that 2,000 years has now passed. Anyone who burned themselves out would have met up with Paul in glory afterwards and said, that was really an exaggeration on your part. I wish you'd allow me to slow down a little. And yet so often I hear preachers will 
say things like that, well, you better get working and you better do more and you better work harder and you better serve uh, with more diligence because you never know Jesus could come back at any moment. And evangelists will use that even as a manipulation tactic sometimes to, to make people put their faith in Christ. Well, none of that is what Paul has in mind here. He's saying that with every passing day, you are closer to your ultimate deliverance, uh, your ultimate salvation, your full salvation. So therefore, make it your priority. Make that salvation, make that truth that you belong to Christ and He is in you and you are in Him, the priority of your life. Not to burn yourself out with good works, but to burn away all the distractions that take you away from the good works. Oh, it is true that we do not preach good works here as a way to improve your standing with God, but we do preach good works as that which you were ordained before the foundation of the world to do through the power of the Holy Spirit working in you, not just to make you a better person, but ultimately to make you holy as God is holy. So that's the priority. What's the next one? It's the pursuit. That's in verses 12 and 13. He says here, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. It is time to work. The, the sun has come up. You're, you're late. Get up. Get going. Be aware of this. Get out of your uh, hazy, slow, lethargic start to the day. Now, there are some people who have said that because of what he's about to describe, that this must be a reference to soldiers that had uh, spent too much of the previous evening drinking and carousing. I don't know if that's the case. I don't really see anything in, in here that would suggest that. I really think it refers to anybody who is battling the need to get up and get going. And so he says to them, the night is far gone. There's no more need to be conducting the deeds of darkness. The, the day is at hand. It's here. So then, verse 12, or therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. This is a fascinating sentence. So then, let us cast off. This, again, is something that I think would have made sense to them in their, in their context. Let me give you, again, a little bit of background here in Rome. Uh, the word there for cast off was the same word that was used to describe the changing room in the local bathhouses. So uh, it's a term for the locker room or the change room. And so he says, time to go into the change room. It's time to take off the clothes you're wearing and put on the clothes that are readying you for battle. And it's really quite interesting when you go into the history of Rome and the bathhouses because bathing in general was not a common practice until very recently. You don't have to go too far back in time to find that people bathed uh, very seldom. Uh, they didn't understand personal hygiene, didn't understand bathing. Um, I believe it was Queen Victoria, right, who famously said she takes a bath once a month whether she needs it or not. Um, What we have here is a reference to these Roman baths. And when I was considering this, it reminded me of a passage from a book written by a rather humorous, brilliant historian named Bill Bryson. And uh, I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs from his book that references these baths, especially around the time when Paul is writing. Uh, he says this, quote, the ancient Greeks were devoted bathers. They loved to get naked, gymnasium means the naked place, and work up a healthful sweat, and it was their habit to conclude their daily workouts with a communal bath. But these were primarily hygienic plunges. For them, bathing was a brisk business, something to be gotten over quickly. Really serious bathing, languorous bathing, starts with Rome. Nobody has ever bathed with as much devotion and precision as the Romans did. The Romans loved water altogether. One house in Pompeii had 30 taps, and their network of aqueducts provided their principal cities with a superabundance of fresh water. The delivery rate to Rome worked out 
at an intensely lavish 300 gallons per head per day, seven or eight times more than the average Roman needs today. To Romans, the baths were more than just a place to get clean. They were a daily refuge, a pastime, a way of life. In fact, um, it's true that Romans would typically get up very early in the morning and they would work until about noon and they would spend the rest of the day often in the bathhouses. And he says this, Roman baths had libraries, shops, exercise rooms, barbers, beauticians, tennis courts, snack bars, and brothels. People from all classes of society used them. As one author uh, put it, it was common when meeting a man to ask where he bathed. It was a sign of your social status and your network. It seems that for much of the Roman era, the baths were marked by a certain rigid decorum, which assuredly provided a healthy rectitude, but that as time went on, life in the baths, as with life in Rome generally, grew increasingly frisky, and it became common for men and women to bathe together and possibly for females to bathe with male slaves. No one really knows quite what the Romans got up to in there, but whatever it was, it didn't sit well with the early Christians. They viewed Roman baths as licentious and depraved, morally unclean, if not hygienically so. You see, ancient Christians looked at what went on in those bathhouses. They looked at what went on in sort of the, the luxuriating of the people for the last half of the day, and they saw that as a place where immorality could quite easily be engaged in. And so I find it very striking that Paul would conjure up the image of the local bathhouse as a way of saying it's the very thing that you need to put off or cast off and instead to put on the armor, or better translated, I think, the weapons of light. That word armor in your translation, it might say that. It's the same word used twice in Romans 6.13 to talk about instruments or weapons, same as what Paul uses it for in 2 Corinthians 6, 7, and 10, 4. Uh, this was not just armor, but it was also to go on the offensive. Cast off the works of darkness, put on this weapon of light. Take seriously the pursuit of holiness. The, the pursuit of holiness is a battle. The pursuit of holiness is not just some exercise that you go through that will yield results without much effort. It's something that requires strenuous fighting against sin. And so he describes it in verse 13, the pursuit in more detail. He says, let us walk properly then as in the daytime. Walk as you would in the light. Not when it's dark, not when you have to feel and grope around, but when it's light, when you could walk freely and quickly. You're not stumbling over everything in front of you. And to avoid these three pairs of sins, orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality and sensuality, quarreling and jealousy. Notice how the verse is structured. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in those, not in those, and not in those. If we were to take them and, and summarize them in a way that we could understand a little bit better perhaps, I would say these refer to indulgence, immorality, and immaturity indulgence, immorality, and immaturity. The first two, orgies and drunkenness. Orgies might be a little bit of a strong term. There was no evidence that that was necessarily a common practice in Rome, but rather uh, the word is often translated carousing, and that might be a little bit better, kind of an old English word. The idea that there was uh, partying going on was often used to describe what friends would do when they would return back from a successful battle and they would, be, they would be celebrating the victory of Rome and they would be involved in this carousing and even some say rioting in the streets and drunkenness. It's just um, indulgence, pure indulgence. Now you might say, well, this is good because um, I can check that off my list of potential sins because it's been a very long time, perhaps never, that I've been involved in an orgy or been drunk. Now, before you sort of assume this doesn't apply to you, uh, let's broaden this out and say, what's the principle behind the command? The principle behind the command is basically lazy indulgence. 
overconsumption. And that can be anything these days. It can be alcohol, it could be sleep, it could be TV, it could be video games, it, it could be just general laziness. Anything that would cause a person to descend into the immorality of self-indulgence. The next one, in more particular terms, sexual immorality and sensuality. This is that which would be immoral. Um, sexuality and even some kinds of sensuality are not inherently immoral, but this is the immoral version of that. And so Paul says it is inappropriate for Christians to indulge. It's inappropriate for them to be immoral sexually. And it's also inappropriate in their pursuit of holiness to be tangled up in quarreling and jealousy. This is really the definition of immaturity. Quarreling, fighting. Uh, James is very clear, by the way, in his epistle about what brings about quarreling. Quarreling, fighting, lack of unity comes from not getting what we want. That's how he describes it. It's that simple. You want it and you can't have it. And you might say, well, that certainly applies to toddlers, but it wouldn't apply to me. Well, ask yourself, what was the last, what was the last reason that you and your spouse got into an argument? What about the last time you or a coworker got into an argument? You or someone in this church got into an argument? I believe if you're really honest with yourself and you trace it back, oftentimes the genesis of all kinds of conflict inside the church, inside the home, inside the workplace, inside the world, is that one person didn't get what they wanted. And as a result, the conflict escalates. And so here, Paul is saying that it's impossible to pursue holiness if you're constantly quarreling, you're constantly jealous. And this is a great point to remind us of the fact that in the coming weeks, we're going to begin a new series about what it means to live with one another in harmony in the church. And that's really everything that Paul wants to unpack in Romans 14. In Romans 14, Paul is going to say there's two primary sins that occur in the church in terms of the personal relationships. The first one is that you have a bunch of people who are judgmental. And the second is you have people who despise. One group is judgmental, the other group despises. And he's going to give a whole list of things that people do inside the church or don't do inside the church, and it causes this potential conflict. He says, you're going to have people doing things that you don't agree with, or you're going to be doing things that other people don't agree with. And I, this won't come as a shock, but there are people in this church who don't agree on things that they do. Believe it or not, this applies to us. Some of you do things that other people think is wrong, and some of you do things you can't understand why others won't join you. And Paul says there's a problem because it can create within the church a group of people who judge and a group of people who despise. Who are the judgers? The judgers are the people who look down on the people who do something that they wouldn't do, and they equate their spiritual maturity or godliness as a result. They say, well, you're less godly than me because you do this and this and this. And the people who do this and this and this are saying, amen, brother, you preach it. Those judgmental people drive me crazy. <laughs> and by doing that, they're expressing the second sin, which is despising. The despisers are the ones who say that that person over there doesn't do this and doesn't do this and doesn't do this. And what is their problem? Why are they such an uptight prude? And they despise them and they reject them. They don't want to hang around them. And so Paul is saying that all of this is happening even within the church, and so he's going to give us some very clear instructions on how to handle it, and this is a little precursor by saying if you're going to truly pursue holiness, you have to avoid any kind of quarreling and jealousy, indulgence, immorality, immaturity, the very things that cannot be pursued at the same time as pursuing Christ-likeness. And that brings us to the third and final one for this morning, and that is your position. And this is perhaps the most encouraging of all. Know your position. Verse 14, but in contrast to this, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I love the fact that he says to put on the Lord Jesus Christ as opposed to put on good works. He doesn't say put off the deeds of darkness and put on the good works of your culture. Put on the good works of your, of your Christian culture. Be the good externally conforming Christian man or Christian woman that other people say you should be. No. He says you put off the deeds of darkness and you put on 
Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Realize that you have His righteousness covering you and live like it. You have His Spirit indwelling you and live like it. You have His love covering you and promising never to be separated from you based on anything that you do, so live like it. Live like you are in Christ. Live like the Spirit is in you. Live like you have the assurance of the Father's love. And make no provision for the flesh. You see, the provision here, the giving the flesh a chance, giving those sinful desires license, is not connected so much to your behavior, but to your position. It's inappropriate for somebody who's a child of God to go about finding ways to indulge in sinful practices. It doesn't make any sense. He says, he says you're a child of God. You don't go about trying to find ways to accommodate your flesh. You don't go about manipulating circumstances and scheming in order to sin and not be caught. He says, you put on Christ, make no provision for the flesh. To do what? To gratify its desires. And this is probably the most important word in the entire section. Do not gratify its desires. What does the word desires mean? Um, It's a Greek word, epithumia. You've probably heard it before. Epithumia. And uh, this word for desires is translated quite often like in the, in the older translations, like in the King James, as lusts. And so immediately when you read the word lust, uh, you think something sexual, you think something perverse. Uh, but the word epithumia, it means a strong desire. And uh, most of the time, uh, Bible teachers will say something like this. They'll say, epithumia means strong desire, but it's a neutral term, and it's only negative if what you desire is evil, but it's good if what you desire is holy. And that's partially true, but it's really not complete, because it takes away from the actual significance of the meaning of the word and focuses on how it's applied. So while I agree to some extent that that is true, let's back up and say, what does the actual word mean, though? The actual word used in this context is a word that could be translated super desire an all-consuming desire, an absolutely um, captivating focus and passion. It has at the beginning of the word epi, that's a, uh, a prefix. It's like where we get epic from or epicenter. Uh, the very most dense and, and, and focused place, the, the, the epicenter, the start of it, or something that is epic. These are epic desires. And these desires, as a result of being like that, are not normal desires. Uh, These are desires that you would describe as disordered even, or or even um, disproportionate. They're extreme desires. Now, how do you know you've encountered an extreme desire? I'm going to give you three ways. Now, there's probably a million ways we could look at this, but I'll give you three that I think of, and they're easier for me to remember because they all start with the letter A. So, once again, here's my my, my triple A explanation for knowing when you've got a desire that's completely out of control. The first one is that if you don't get what you want, it makes you angry. Anger. Anger is is described often in in the Scriptures as being one of the most telltale indicators of the condition of a person's heart. In fact, in Proverbs, we're told at the beginning of the 30 sayings of wisdom that if you're going to instruct your children in one lesson, if there's one lesson that you could teach them that they'll never forget, it would be don't make friends with angry people. People who are just angry. And and anger is one of the defining characteristics of somebody who has a disordered desire and they're not getting it. They're not getting what they want. And they respond in rage. They respond in in an outward kind of anger or an inward kind of anger. Anger that is vented on somebody else is rage. Anger that is vented on you is bitterness. And they become internally corroded by their own bitterness because they don't get what they want, and anger consumes them, and they're constantly seething or lashing out at people. Uh, they're just a time bomb. And, and you might say that you can relate to that because there's something that in your life, if it's taken away from you or if you don't get it, you feel yourself getting angry. Ask yourself, is there anything like that? If so, it's one of these desires. Uh, the next word is alienation. It can cause you to be alienated. If you have something that is such an uh, all-consuming desire and you don't get it, you have no option but to withdraw. 
You withdraw from people, you withdraw from gathering with the church, you withdraw from your time with the Lord even, you become entirely inwardly focused, it's all about you. You don't want to have any relationships, you don't want to have any friends, you don't want to be uh, with other people, you just want to be all by yourself. And um, one nuance of this came to, to mind on Sunday as we were away, as you know, and I was listening to um, another sermon, and, and the preacher was talking about how important it is to gather together with the local church, how important it is to come to church and be a part of the church. And um, he said something very interesting. I hadn't thought of this before. He said, when you don't come to church as a believer, it's an act of arrogant pride. It's an act of arrogant pride that it says, essentially, you don't need the church. And all the gifts that God has given to all the church in order to build each other up and to encourage one another, everything that they designed the church to do doesn't apply to you. You're okay. You've got it covered. I don't need the church. I've got my Bible. I've got my books. I've got my live stream. I've got my house church. I don't need to be with those people. Besides, they get it wrong on so many levels, which is really important if that's the way you feel because you want to be here for Romans 14. But the idea that you don't need to be in a local assembly. Yet another indication of this desire for alienation, separation, because of some disordered desire that's not getting met. And then finally, the, the last one is anxiety. If there's one thing that would um, define somebody who has turned something that is maybe good into something that is so important to them that they've got a disordered passion for it, it would be anxiety. They're afraid of losing it. This can happen in relationships. You're, you're so obsessed. You've got such a, an epic desire for this other person, this man, this woman, that the very thought of losing them would utterly and completely crush you. Or maybe it's money, the thought of not having enough money or losing money, or your job, your career, your, even your reputation. I read somewhere that your reputation is what other people think of you, your character is what you are. It's very hard for you to preserve your reputation, especially when people around you lie. But if it's so important to you that it absolutely crushes you and decimates you when it's lost, then it has become a disordered desire. Anger, alienation, anxiety, fear, all come from having these desires. So how do we control them? We control them by not giving any opportunity for the flesh, but I think there's more that can be said about it, and Paul does. So look over to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. We'll start there. Just two other passages I'll draw your attention to as we try to understand this more clearly. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Uh, you know it well. And do not get drunk with wine, for that would be debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Very simple statement. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, in order to understand that, I want to back up and say, what's the context for that statement? Because we all know it. Don't be drunk with wine. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. But how does that fit within the broader context of his argument? Well, back up to verse 15, and you'll see, because the two fit together perfectly. In verse 15, he says, look carefully then how you walk. Same word as in verse 13 of Romans 13. Look then carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Same ideas. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that would be debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. How? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Do you see how he locates your power to overcome these epic desires and disproportionate lusts of the flesh by placing you within the body of Christ so that you can walk wisely according to the will of God and be built up and encouraged by the other believers who are filled with the Spirit and encouraging one another. Galatians chapter 5. Turn there, verse 16. sermon last week was excellent, very encouraging to me, and I learned a great deal and was greatly edified by it. 
And it brought me back into this book, and as I was um, discussing with my hosts who were putting us up last weekend, before I even had heard the sermon, we were talking about the different books of the Bible in the New Testament, Paul's letters, his audiences, what was going on in those churches. And um, we were contrasting the book of um, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, which was written to a group of people who were basically so in love with grace that they had thrown off any kind of moral restraint, and Paul was always trying to rein them back in a little bit and remind them of personal holiness. And then you had on the other extreme the Galatians, and the Galatians were so concerned about external appearances and works um, that they weren't really in danger of saying, let's sin that grace may abound. They were in the other camp. They were always trying to add works to grace. It could never be enough. Belief alone can't be enough. Faith alone can't be enough. And I, I said to him, you know, I, I, I know my, my tribe, like my context, I don't have very many Corinthians. Um, I've got quite a few Galatians, but not a lot of Corinthians. And I find that really in our context as we do love the gospel, we, we love the truth, we love the Lord, we, we see our sin, we wish that we could get rid of it completely. We, we, we hate it when we fall. And so we have this desire to kind of layer upon our lives all of this law and all this regulation and all of these works, thinking that if we just build high enough walls and thick enough hedges that we won't ever sin. And, and, and Paul understands that temptation. <laughs> if anybody understands, it's Paul. And so he says to these Galatian believers, and I say to you this morning, and may this, may this encourage you and may this lighten your load today. May, may you leave here with a lightened load, not a, not a heavier load. He says this in verse 16 of Galatians 5, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, the epithumia of the sarks. It's the same construction. You will not gratify it. You will not bring it to its conclusion. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the flesh. No, you're not under the what? Say it. Law. Oh, it's so tempting to throw law on top of our flesh. That'll control it. Paul says, no, it won't. He says, if you walk by the Spirit, you're not under the, the law. In fact, you've fulfilled the law. We saw that in Romans 13 earlier. He goes on to describe the, the works of the flesh, and then he contrasts that not with the works of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit. You don't do the good works in order to earn the favor of God, you are already perfect in His sight because you're covered with Christ's righteousness, and as a result, you produce fruit. The tree produces fruit because it's alive. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the things that are produced. So, back to Romans 13. What does it mean to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for these works of the flesh? What does it mean to not gratify these desires, these epic desires which distort our reality because it makes us angry when we don't get what we want or we are alienated from people because we don't get what we want or we're anxious constantly because we don't get what we want? He says, walk by the Spirit instead. That would be his answer. Let that Spirit produce the fruits, not just good works from your own effort. And in that way, you'll be able to show the priority that you have, casting off these works of darkness, a proper pursuit of holiness, and a reminder every day of your position before God as one who has been made righteous because of the righteousness of Christ and one who in so doing has fulfilled the law. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this truth and for reminding us of it through Paul's writings today. We confess that it's easy at times for us to have these desires that are just so all-consuming that we lose sight of your goodness and your kindness and your provision. We find ourselves angry. We find ourselves 
quarreling with others, anxious and worried, fearful. Lord, I ask that you would, in your own grace and kindness, release our grip on these things. Help us to live with an open hand, knowing that you will give us only good things, and that what you take away was even done for our good. And Lord, I pray that we would be those who understand the pursuit of holiness, that nothing we ever do here at this church would would promote lawlessness, would promote a disregard for the works that you have before ordained that we would do, but in fact a greater desire to see these things, but not just the, the measly good work efforts that we bring, but the glorious fruit of the Holy Spirit and the holiness of God. Help us to, at the same time, be encouraged every week that it is not any work that we will be judged by that will determine our eternal position with you, that that's been settled once and for all, and that that perfect sacrifice has been applied to us, and we are therefore righteous in your sight. Lord, I do ask that as we depart from here today, that it would be with hearts that are encouraged. For those that aren't with us uh, today, I ask that, that you would be ministering to them through your word and that they would return to us soon. For those who may even decide not to be with us for shame because of sin, that you would remind them that this is precisely where they need to be with others who have experienced the same forgiveness and can build one another up with the hymns, songs, and spiritual songs that we're about to once again enjoy. And may all of this be done for your glory and honor. And all God's people said, amen.